Hi, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Avi Herskowitz, and I want to thank you for joining me today, Thursday, January 19th, for this webinar, looking at the state of the art of COVID infection in the United States, as well as controversies in terms of vaccination and boosters and what we can do to prevent uh, disease and so on. I, I want to also say that as a disclaimer that what I'm going to say now is not meant to be uh, a level of a consultation on the medical side. Anyone that has a serious question should seek uh, a medical care uh, by a professional and also is my own personal opinion uh, on all the subjects that I'm going to be discussing. So thank you again for joining me and let's get started. I'm going to share some slides first and build on a a two-day um, conference that we ran back in November um, in, as an ACAM meeting on long COVID. Um, I had to review the history of the virus. And the reason I wanted this session here is to just update everybody, uh, not so much to review everything about the history, uh, but to review what's what the science shows today, not the theories, and just to debunk some of the theories that are out there. Back in November, we gave a sort of a tour of the, of the state of the art of where we were. And we focused a lot on long COVID and long COVID has seems to, to stabilize. And, but now the, as the winter came, all the, the media and, and all the attention came onto the booster world. And I wanted to, to deal with that at a great length. Um, but let me first give a context, because I think some of the most important features of this experience and lessons learned from the pandemic come actually from its history and how it started um, and how we, what we began to learn right away. And what we knew back three years ago was that the best possible scenario would be is that you would catch um, the COVID-19 and get natural immunity. Um, now, that was very scary because the first wave that hit the United States, particularly the East Coast, was from Europe. The first big wave, I think in the West Coast, we had some uh, a wave even before uh, the spring of, 20, of 2020. But natural immunity was the way to go. Um, and it, we knew that the virus attached to the ACE2 receptor which is preferential to the upper respiratory system. And, and it was well understood what it does. So we understood that certain people would be at risk and certain people would, would pass away. And we also felt from the beginning that uh, children would be largely protected. Um, and the data came out fairly quickly. So this is March of 2020, uh, where, if you, as you recall, the wave of of death and um, and morbidity happened in New York in particular that got the most attention. Um, well, we knew right away that the the absolute the the, bulk, the huge bulk of the population that was affected was in the elderly population. And although I'm not going to show it, it, this is the population that also had three or more comorbid um, conditions. And what I mean by that is hypertension pre-diabetes or diabetes, prior history of heart disease or prior history of stroke. And this is back from the data from November of 2020. This is um, nine, eight months 
into the pandemic, we knew that the older population was the most affected. And what you can see here is that the, the younger population under 45 was barely a blip in the mortality information. But as you remember, the, the Delta variant was scary because it, it tended to make the sick, the ill patients very ill and, and, and got them into respiratory failure. And um, not only wasn't that, um, was that potentially fatal, uh, it left so many people in the earliest wave with a great deal of, of longstanding pulmonary or, or lung problems. But this is what we knew already, that the elderly were affected, the young were relatively protected, um, and, and um, that the, pa the patients, the people out there with comorbid conditions um, were the ones that were mainly affected. Okay, now th this is where the immunology comes in. Now this very, very basic, basic, basic stuff. There's basically no clear correlation between immune function and protection, and that's because we don't measure the, the things that we need to measure. So what we're measuring is the easy, easy material. The easy stuff is antibodies because we can measure. We know how to measure antibodies, and the assays were developed immediately after the pandemic started. And, uh, but everyone that gets a viral infection of any kind will develop antibodies to that infection to that virus, to some, some component of that virus. And some of those antibodies are neutralizing or they're capable of killing the virus on their own. But it's also completely normal for the antibody levels to decline. So if you're only measuring antibody levels, which is what, what the government decided to do uh, and what the authorities decided to do, then if, you're, if, you, if you argue that lower antibody levels are, are bad for you, then that's a, just simply a normal, uh, the normal pattern, the, 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 the normal pattern of behavior for everyone with a viral infection of any kind, let alone COVID-19. So the decline in that is not a great marker. Um, and, and we noticed that different populations in the, in the hospital had varying populations of antibodies. What was the main thing was how 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 much viral load you actually had been exposed to and how long it took you to develop these antibodies, meaning how long did the virus itself have on its own to injure cells, particularly in the respiratory tract. And then everybody who, who, um, who has a viral infection develops antibodies first and then T cells. And those, those lymphocyte cells are the ones that give you permanent immunity and we never developed the testing uh, for the, those T cells uh, until very late. Um, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But basically we're measuring the wrong tool that only can tell you whether you've been exposed. It doesn't tell you how sick you're gonna be or how long you, how, what your complication rates are gonna be. So when you look at the experts that talked about this, um, they said that there were assays that could be developed to to understand T cell specific or lymphocyte specific immunity that would gauge how long you would be protected after getting exposed to the virus, but it was just too complicated to do. This is a quote from, I believe, the NIH. So, so based on 
the hypothesis that you know the old people, the the, the high risk patients should be focused on, and and so on. The ACE2 receptor is well known, uh, and natural immunity is best. We we then get to the current world, and the current this slide comes from back in November, so it's a few months old. So we understand that even after the Delta variant is long, long gone, and now Omicron in November um, is has taken over, and that's when the BA four and five variants were big, and they're no longer the the key the key variants any longer because they, they've fundamentally changed again. But severe complications from the virus are due to persistent and abnormal immune reactions. And the virus is already gone by the time you get really ill uh, from it. So who is currently in the hospital? Who, who do you see in the hospital from, uh, with, a, with a viral infection from COVID-19 who's in the intensive care unit? It tends to be um, the, the elderly and, and the majority of people dying now are above the age of 80 and they have comorbid conditions and they can't handle the high fever and the cough and, and, and the, the various things, the various stressors that it puts the rest of the body on. Um, but by November, the, the, the big news of the day was to, to talk about the, the mystery of long COVID. And, and we were talking about two, two full days of analysis of what it looks like and how you could theoretically treat it like other other disorders that we that we in the integrative world see, uh, like Lyme disease and and uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and so on, but we 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 understand that long COVID may be due and is likely to be due to in many patients to persistence of the spike protein, and that means whether you've been exposed just to the virus or also exposed to to the boosters and the vaccines elicited a state of autoimmunity. Um, that has been my expertise for the last 30 plus years, so I, I can answer any questions regarding this. Um, and this bucket called long COVID is actually composed of multiple buckets of people, and I, I'd be happy to talk about it at length. Today is not going to be the day where we're going to completely focus on it. So why, why did we do so poorly in the United States? Well, we focused only on vaccines. We had no serious public health discussion about how to prevent complications from something that would affect the ACE2 receptor. And that majority of Americans are metabolically un unhealthy, and this comes from governmental data. Um, and uh, roughly a third of the population uh, of our uh, pop entire population of adults have diabetes or prediabetes, and any country that has this type of population will have a lot more dis problems from COVID-19 based on the way it, the way it enters the body. Uh, and this may explain why the Asians and the Africans have done so much better than people from the West. So in, back in, in November, uh, we, we did focus that ACAM meeting on long COVID, um, and it was already taken up by uh, this, this magazine and many others in terms of uh, as personal stories of the neglected disease, uh, much like chronic fatigue and chronic Lyme. Uh, but 
and what we noticed with that is that some people who who were actually asymptomatic when they first got ill with the virus or they never had the virus and just had the vaccines um they it was enough to trigger autoimmune reactions and they still can develop long covid that, that means you didn't have to be really really ill with covid infection or or you could have remained either asymptomatic or or never had documented covid infection and still get long covid but it does and we started seeing patients about a year or so ago with diseases that looked with symptoms that looked like fibromyalgia that looked like chronic fatigue that looked like chronic Lyme that looked like mold uh and they also start having patients who are very sensitive to the environment so called mast cell activation syndrome and people with pots pots which is of uh, this postural tachycardia syndrome which is very debilitating and very difficult to treat but um we can get into that later but the the two things that we worried about early on were were things that were really first noted in people who were hospitalized so people that are hospitalized who got um who got better on their own uh or got better uh, after you know the, a stint in the ICU um they had longer term brain problems uh whether it's a stroke or or something really focal or it was just I, i just have brain a serious brain fog but we understood that there was something going on specific to the brain and the vascular system uh but it did affect many patients uh and the cognitive function um and then the other the other thing that we focused on at the meeting and I'll focus a little bit on today is the is the link between the virus and heart problems of varying kinds so in jama back in about a, a year or so ago uh, they started noticing uh, extra cardiovascular outcomes and so if you take all comers a thousand people um and this includes the youngsters too who who don't have inherent comorbid conditions they don't have prediabetes they don't have hypertension and so on so they're at lower risk you had many many new cardiovascular events the the one that's the most dramatic of course is heart attack and sudden cardiac death and I'll get into that in a minute but we've also seen and we see patients like that here at Anatara uh, not infrequently sudden cardiac death uh with some some people have been fortunate enough to be resuscitated others uh, dramatically um uh die with that presentation but we also have uh, atrial fibrillation and other types of events uh, like congestive heart failure that comes um um silently so to speak so we see all of these things and uh, it's been now shown in in many different ways that these particular brain and cardiac problems are increased and began increasing in 2022 rather than 2020 or 2021 and that 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 leads to the argument that much of these extra events adverse events occur are occurring and still occurring due to the the vaccines and the boosters rather than to the virus itself 
so you had, you, this isn't the beginning of 2022. So this is a year ago. Um, uh, Europeans started saying, wait a second. I think that it's sort of silly to start giving boosters every, every few months. Um, and it may actually weaken the immune system because the data started, the immunology data started to, to, to show that, to show a suppression of the immune system to future uh, variants of COVID. And then the Israelis reported that um, that the the fourth vaccine dose, meaning the the two RNA doses, either from Pfizer or from Moderna, and two additional boosters, didn't do very much different than just the original um, uh, vaccination. Uh, what benefit the original vaccination gave, but but of course. The, the safety profile was still said to be very, very, very strong. And yet right now we're going to dispel some of that. Um, and so the, bo the body is not a machine that is, is, feeds well on repeated exposure to the same antigen that isn't life-threatening. And eventually it becomes uh, suppressed to that infection. And I'll explain in a minute how we know this. So, so this happened, so the, uh, well, we all have heard the, uh, the gold standard in medicine is the, the NEJM, the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is back in, in the beginning uh, of 2022. They said uh, the following quotes from that article that came out and that we should base our boosters on real scientific data and understand who needs it and we should we shouldn't boost to a virus more than annually. And this is what the country does typically for flu. Uh, and that's, that should be the soonest it can, it can be done. And why don't we know exactly how often we should, if, if at all, get boosted? And that's because we're running the wrong tests. We're not running the test to say, basically, I had the virus or I have had a vaccine and I have lifelong immunity to it. And I still, that lifelong immunity by lymphocytes is still quite active in me because I have the, I've done the test. Um, so the, so the, the, the improvement would end up to be to, to do different testing and then ultimately get a, a better vaccine strategy in the first place uh, that was developed. So over the course of this year, it's become crystal clear that the myocarditis um, situation um, is is exploding, and we've seen it all on on television with with that football player who who had sudden cardiac arrest on the on on the national television. And in my opinion, um, the the number one uh, potential um, cause of this is myocarditis, but it's not going to ever be proven in him. Um, but the Moderna vaccine is and boosters are a, a, a lot worse than Pfizer, but they're they're all they're all noted, and, they, and you notice that the 16 to 24 year old population is the most effective. Uh, so it's the it's the youngsters who have exceptionally low risk for a complication from the virus itself that are then exposed to the vaccine that have this particular risk and. These are all the college-age students that have been forced to be vaccinated in order to go to school and the high schoolers and so on. 
So this is back in, this is now in the middle of, sort of towards the, towards the third quarter of uh, 2022. It's now just a few, uh, like four months ago. Um, the, uh, the new Omicron specific vaccines don't seem to offer any specific extra protection to existing boosters. That means that to the boosters that were, that were developed uh, one to two years ago. Um, and this has been repeatedly documented in many different studies. So, and, but it's very interesting and very interesting in how they develop these particular um, boosters uh, for the current, the ones that they're currently uh, suggesting that all of us get. And very few of us have gotten, I think less than 10% of the population has been boosted with the newest bivalent vaccines. So this is hard to read. I'll give you a little bit of time to read it. Um, the, the, this is um, the, um, the, the, the main two bullets are the middle and the bottom bullet. So the original trial that got, the trials that got approval or emergency use authorization, they're not approved by FDA, were that people were, we were told that they're 95% effective. Um, first of all, the first real jump between effectiveness uh, with, with essentially no emphasis on safety data, at that point, they only studied people for two or three months after after the vaccines, but they said that 95% less likely to catch the virus. Um, and that's, and, and then you have to, you basically have to vaccinate hundreds, or if not tens of thousands of, uh, of younger people in order to catch one symptomatic infection. But the main um, propaganda was that we would be able to protect others. And, and this was never tested. So the ability of the virus to, of, of the vaccine to even be called a vaccine had to force the FDA to change its definition. And uh, the, the concept that it would protect you from giving it to others was never tested and has been, um, in my opinion, debunked from the current information that we have uh, all, all through all the different variants. So for example, when you have to, less than 1% of people get symptomatic infection, but then you realize that the majority, 80% are above the age of 65, and the great majority of those have three or more comorbid conditions. You can understand if you're a healthy 30-year-old that you have to you have to vaccinate many many thousands of people in order to to um, uh, deliver one uh, symptom, one less symptomatic infection. So, a recent paper. Now, this is more recent. This is a month or two old in Nature. There's a larger a large increase in cardiac arrests. This is from Israel in the 16 to 39 year old groups. So this is people who are not supposed to have sudden death or coronary disease. Um, and um, we have a large increase in this data. And now I believe in, in 2022 um, that these numbers will, will ultimately be related as if they're related to vaccination and to boosters will become 
the leading cause of death in the younger population. Then we come up to January, and and I just did a recent search on, uh, I, I, I wrote into Google, are vaccines fueling new COVID infections? And whenever you try to alter the immune response to a virus, well, of course, you're going to get new viral variants. So you're going to produce more and more of them. That's what they do. Uh, but we've been always fortunate that future variants are usually less problematic than the original one was, which is, again, the case here. But then you get you get hits for the first time. And that's this is from, uh, I think, the uh, Wall Street Journal. So the Wall Street Journal is publishing these data. And um, it comes from an article that just came out um, literally, I think, three, four weeks ago from one of the senior virologists in the United States, Paul Offit. And he wrote the cautionary tale. This is in, the, again, the New England Journal of Medicine. And he wrote that the, the Pfizer uh, bivalent vaccine contains a certain amount of you know, RNA message that directs against the both the original strain, which is called ancestral strain, and it, the reason it's called bivalent is because it's it was approved based on uh, also antigens directed against the BA1 strain, and Moderna used higher doses because it was equivalent to what they originally used in their original vaccines. So this is back in he's quoting what happened back in January and February. So I didn't realize this until I read this article that that our current bivalent vaccines that have been approved were never never were are approved for BA4 and 5 but they were presented to FDA in January and February of 2022 using a different strain BA1 which no longer is around and was no longer um a problem even when they presented it to to FDA. So they got approval anticipating a similar reaction and and with the upcoming new variants, which were called BA4 and BA5. Well, even those variants are, are no longer exist, no longer hardly exist at all. But when they presented it to FDA in early 2022, again, they were a fairly underwhelming type of information. But they did, the FDA advisory committee did vote to, to authorize it on the understanding that they would be targeting a different variant, BA4 and 5, which they hadn't even yet developed. So then the pharma, pharma and you know both Pfizer and Moderna started to develop the one specifically for BA4 and 5, but they had approval from FDA to go forward with it based on data that they showed in January and February of 2022 with a variant that no longer existed. And then the CDC went ahead and, and, and approved it for anyone 12 and over, and then uh, they approved it for, the, for the, everyone that was in the, in the infant population. But at the, that point, when CDC recommended it for everyone, basically, there was no human data available. Uh, and there still isn't any human data available from those particular studies that were done. And and now we, we have a bivalent vaccine, a booster, sorry, to BA4 and BA5. But there's a few problems with that. And that is that uh, the, the 
and that's been highlighted in, in, in the more recent scientific literature. So David Ho is also a very prominent senior virologist, immunologist, um, um, and his colleagues studied the, the neutralizing antibodies against the BA4 and 5, and they found no differences between the original uh, people who were originally vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. Um, and then one day later, um, in the race to get this data out, Dan Baruch, another very senior virologist, immunologist, released the same type of information. So basically, the, the new bivalent vaccines don't offer anything special and don't offer anything significantly different than the original um, boosters and the original vaccines. And the question is, why? Why is this? Why, why would that happen? And, um, and why is this the concept that certain people who are getting more and more of these boosters seem to be getting suddenly ill, whether it's cardiac or, or vascular related, you know, uh, um, different, different blood vessels getting occluded and different very serious illnesses occurring. All right, so let's see what's up. So this is the probably the most important slide I wanna show. Um, this is something that many immunologists already knew would happen and predicted that this would happen. I focused a lot of things that I talked about at ACAM from March of 2020 on auto, on the fact that this will be a, a trigger, COVID-19 would be a trigger for autoimmunity, but didn't, um, didn't uh, focus on this concept of imprinting, but then watched it unfold over time. And that is that when you get a vaccine against a, a specific virus, um, you, your, your immune system learns uh, from that original, uh, that original set of mutations that, that it's, it's targeting. Um, and when you get future boosters to different variants of the, off of the ancestral strain, you're still going to develop more and more antibodies against the older ancestral strain, the original strain. You're going to get very little new antibodies developing to the to the to the variant that you wish. And that's what happens when you boost people over and over again to things that are not that troubling to the immune system. And the immune system learns to ignore the new epitopes that it needs to, that you want it to focus on. And yet, again, the, the overwhelming majority of the population is at low risk from the new variants anyway. Again, both in Europe, where the data started happening um, before Christmas, um, sorry, before Christmas time, um, it showed that the average um, person in hospital in the United Kingdom was 83 and had three comorbid conditions, and now the same is being held true in the United States. So now, so there's some, there's efficacy data that's only two, that's for two, two three months or eight months after receiving. Um, um, there's a small amount of efficacy data comes from the CDC, but when you look at efficacy, uh, when you say, well, what is effectiveness? Effectiveness is, um, is antibody levels. It is not 
this is uh, not really having a big impact on the 80 plus year olds who get symptomatic infection that then leads to hospitalizations. This may be symptomatic infection that basically is like either um, a fairly run of the mill flu or sometimes a more serious flu where you get fatigue, you get fever, you get aches and pains and you may be out of pocket for a week, but then you, you will, if you're left alone, you will develop multi-year at least, or, or if not lifelong immunity. So right now we know that if there is any protection at all, it's gonna be against mild disease and it will be short-lived. And most of the population is now getting tired of listening to the, the, uh, all the noise that's happening around us. Uh, and only about 10% of the population has been recommended, uh, has already received these bivalent vaccines, and that's completely appropriate. And I think um, um, that the youngest population should, should avoid this at, at all costs. Um, but right now, the last bullet is sort of key also. The, the bivalent vaccine is to BA4 and 5, but BA4 is no longer circulating in the United States, and BA5 is only a very small fraction. And now we're on to the BQs and the BXBBs and the XBB1s. We're into the different strains, which, of course, is a normal thing, is a normal natural history of a viral infection. So we're chasing our tails uh, and doing it with technology that um, is, is considered to be potentially fundamentally flawed in terms of how it interacts with our immune system and how it interacts uh, with not only the what's in not only what's in the vaccine and what's used to to activate the vaccines and so on, but it's also an mRNA technology that doesn't have an off switch in certain patients. It just in certain people, the spike protein is continually produced and uh, causes problems. So, um, so this is what the New England Journal says now. Uh, we shouldn't get booster doses. Any, if we're going to get them, we shouldn't get them off and then annually. And, and, and I don't see any purpose to getting the, vac the boosters at any point any longer. Uh, but if you're going to give it to some folks, you'll give it to the older adults with multiple coexisting conditions. The problem with that, with this, um, even the first bullet here that's, of, you know, a statement made by the, the most premier medical journal in the world, the, the problem with it is that it seems to be making people worse rather than protecting people. So that, that so I would say, I'm not sure from my own perspective whether I would vote to, to give the boosters to any particular group right now, unless I really made a, a, um, a really serious analysis of their risk. And we, we have to stop really trying to prevent symptomatic infections in healthy people by boosting them. That's, that's a, a non-starter uh, that cannot affect the natural history of the virus and will only produce more variants. So this is the latest stuff that's happened. I think this, is this, this came from circulation this month. And they're basically saying the people with myocarditis have more spike protein in their bloodstreams than people who don't have my so these are youngsters with myocarditis. Some of them have, don't have an off switch for the RNA 
uh, to make more spike protein. And so there's a link between that uh, myocarditis in teens and circulating levels of spike protein. And, and the next one is, is interesting. It, the, there's no correlation with antibodies against the, um, uh, the virus or the T cell response to the virus because it, it's got nothing to do with the, the, with the virus per se. It's got to do with an autoimmune reaction to what's the constituents in the in the in the vaccine itself or the boosters themselves. So why why would this happen and what is the immunology behind it? Well, one of the main hypotheses now is when you study subgroups of antibodies called IgG, these are the long-standing antibodies. This G4 antibody is seen uh, in people that have repeated uh, vaccinations, and this is a, a, a an antibody that um, that that is responsible as a turn. It's a turn off switch. So when the immune system is exposed continually to a foreign agent that is not lethal, it will stop targeting it vis-a-vis -vis these types of regulatory IgG antibodies that tell the immune system to just forget about this antigen. So when you get exposed to a a new variant. You, dis, you disregard it. And what happens is you simply have higher viral levels in your throat and your pharynx and larynx for a longer period. And then that's when you get the, that's when you feel sicker from the flu than you would normally feel if you, if you didn't get boosted. So this is the state of where we are. I don't think that there's any scientific information out there that suggests the value of, of boosters for the overwhelming majority of the population. And, um, and the RNA component, the mRNA component for the Pfizer and, and, uh, and Moderna vaccines have simply uh, not been tested for safety properly. And they won't be as long as the, um, they get approved by FDA for emergency use. Um, and so what, what do I do? If I wanted to understand what someone's potential risk is, I look at things that we should be all being taught every day by the public health service, and you look for predictors. And so I look for the, the master regulators of immune function, and I look at the vitamin D level as the, the one that's probably the most significant. I look at all the inflammatory markers, the D-dimer is a coagulation marker that's really been uh, steadily um, elevated in very many patients after getting uh, either ju just the virus and then disappears over time, but it's sticking around longer in people who've gotten the vaccines and um, have gotten the boosters. And we look at the surveillance immune system, it's called the natural killer cell population, the CD57 cells. And I look, we look for absolute risk reduction by age, and we look for T cell reactions. And if you have T cells reactions to SARS-CoV-2, the original ancestral strain, then you already have the same number, the same amount of antibodies as you would have if you got a booster to the current uh, strains um, because they're just moving too rapidly. Um, and so I look for who's at immunological disadvantage, so to speak. And then what we really needed in the United States and the real lesson from COVID-19 was to uh, reduce the comorbid conditions. 
So what are they? The, the prediabetes and hypertension and exposure to mold and heavy metals. Um, the fact that we don't repair while we sleep and we don't sleep as well as we should and our detox pathways aren't, um, aren't optimized. And this should be the most important lesson learned from COVID-19, but someone forgot to mention it to the, to the public health service. So um, I'm gonna get off the sharing of the slides and, and get on to the, the Q&A. And I will thank you for your time. I know it took about a half an hour, it's a little longer than I thought. Um, and we can take a Q&A from everyone if we wanted to. So you can put into the chat if you'd like. Right now we are seeing um, f f uh, patients with, with post, post-vaccination um, POTS and this autonomic disturbances and, and postural hypotension and um, states of sleep, sleep disturbances and um, uh, folks that need anti-anxiety medicines and so on, a lot of neurological subtle, subtle stuff, but also severe, severe complications like cardiac complications that we're, we're seeing so how do you protect yourself? Uh, that's, you know, we've we've sent out, I think five different times we've sent out a sheet that contained the the antiviral, the natural antivirals. Um, there is no current data on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine on these newer variants, um, but um, um, so I have no specific opinion. Um, from it, but one of the next questions is how are people detoxing from the constant spike creation in their cells? Well, that's where some some patients, some some colleagues and patients are have been taking are are going to be taking multiple months worth of um, ivermectin. Um, what is the exact amount of time um, uh, for this? Uh, we we don't know, but we know that from some experiences with long COVID patients that. Um, my estimate is you'd have to take ivermectin for several months uh, to to deal with um, persistent viral proteins inside cells. Um, and ivermectin is, I think, an improvement over hydroxychloroquine for that particular purpose as a preventative. Uh, but it's it's not it's not been tested. Uh, but but it's a very safe drug. So I think the number one thing you can do to 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 protect yourself is make sure and ensure that your vitamin D level is elevated to 60 plus range, 60 to 80, or I have mine ideally in between 80 and 100. Um, I think that's fundamentally important. How, how do you, how do you um, um, get antioxidants into your system that are you know, working properly? So whether it's vitamin C or it's resveratrol or it's um, uh, alpha lipoic acid or or it's all nutrient based from foods um, th these are the best approaches and and how and our and our food supply is the biggest source of our inf of, of inflammation in the body so I would I would focus our attention on on, on getting pure um, you know, non-adulterated food from the farmer's markets and so on. So there was one question um, the, um, on, on whether this 
extracorporeal blood oxygenation and ozonation, this thing called e EBOO for vaccine injury. Um, well, there there are a few few centers, including ours, that are using EBU and and a stronger version of it, which we call plasma filtration, uh, for vaccine injury, amongst other things. Uh, and um, there's good there's good there is good results coming from this if you're willing to to do it repeatedly. One one session that filters the blood. Uh, what is in that filter? Well, uh, uh, we've shown during the meeting that we had in ACAM, we showed that uh, we have um, fungus, we have bacteria, we have biofilm that's produced by these chronic organisms um, in the filter, which all uh, are associated with, um, with um, inflammation and active inflammation and would gunk up the the microcirculation, and you wouldn't be able to get uh, the positive nutrients and supplements downstream, and 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 even the ivermectin downstream. So, it it is effective, but it, it may take it, it may take four, may take eight, may pay, may take twelve sessions from Ebu in order to make a difference. And they usually couple Ebu with chelation therapy. And and I also thought that about a year or so ago that that. Um, for Lynn Patrick in particular, but uh, that this would be a boon for chelation therapy because so many people have, as part of their co comorbid conditions, they have exposure to mold, but they also have exposure to uh, heavy metals. And this would be um, a renaissance period for, for uh, chelation therapy, which I hope still takes place. From Andrea, what protocols uh, um, am I recommending for long COVID symptoms such as insomnia? I think that's a subtle neurological uh, effect. Um, and um, on the autonomic nervous system, raising the sympathetic drive and suppressing the, the calming effects of, of, um, of the parasympathetic system. And I think we heard a lecture on, um, on specifically on the effects of CBD on on affecting that system before one goes to sleep or to, or to use it around the clock um, for, for this level of insomnia. We also understand that uh, our innate circadian rhythm has been off for decades now in most of us, but this unearths it, this unmasks that deficiency that we have. So uh, wearing the 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 appropriate um, blue light blockers at night, um, uh, turning off our computers, uh, reducing our EMF exposure, and then really getting into a very serious attempt for gut repair, uh, because the, the this is all made worse by any level of inflammatory signaling. Uh, the long COVID is an autoimmune state, and many people, not not in all, but in many people, and anything that activates the immune system will be will not be elegantly integrated into the system as as it normally would be and that therefore it gets unmasked so um, uh, th those are the, the um, and, and then of course the natural herbs that are used for insomnia but uh, this is becoming uh, very 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 common in larger numbers of people because larger numbers of people won't get 
you know, multiple sclerosis symptoms. The large majority won't get a stroke. The large majority will get some subtlety. So I see the subtlety is on depression side, anxiety side, and raising the sympathetic tone of people who are on the edge. And then it manifests the most commonly in, in, in those of us, including myself, um, on, on the level of insomnia. Um, I've heard about Paxlovid. Can we comment on it? So Paxlovid is an antiviral. It does <clears throat> reduce the viral load in the, in the upper respiratory system. If taken within five days, I would say, why wait five days if you have it and you're going to use it? Um, you have to use it more rapidly to get the real effect. The real effect is to reduce the viral load and then um, reduce symptoms, therefore. But um, but the 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 downside is is that you're going to um, suppress the the natural immune system as well to the virus and therefore you're going to be at risk to get the the same strain again so a lot of the most famous um, folks out there including dr fauci um, took the paxlovid and then got immediately ill right after they got over it so if you're at really serious risk of any really serious risk for just getting the a, a flu uh, I, I would I would I would consider it and I would consider it seriously. Uh, at the same time, if you feel you could uh, survive a regular flu, then I wouldn't use it. Um, okay. And if I currently recommend flu shots, well, I I I I've, I don't rec I don't routinely recommend flu shots. And the question is why? You know, the question is someone's mom. Um, wants to know. And again, it depends on, on the story. The, the story is, uh, will they work? And typically, they've always worked less than a third of the time they've gotten the antigens. They have to guess the antigens, so they haven't guessed correctly. And that triple thing of saying we're going to get COVID-19 in the winter and we're going to get the flu um, and, and, and all the other viruses and so on hasn't panned out. So, um, uh, I haven't seen a lot of flu-related, non-COVID-related serious problems. Again, you, you may feel crummy for a few days. What I have, what we have seen, is reactivation of the chronic viruses in the body, and those are more serious. So, reactivation of cytomegalovirus, of Epstein-Barr virus, of mycoplasma and pneumonia, um, and uh, these these things that live inside our cells for long, long periods of time uh, throughout our lifetime. And it's reactivating the immune system's activity against them, even though they've been dormant for decades. Uh, Lyme activation, reactivation, Bartonella reactivation, um, and then mold activation and people who've been um, living with it for a long time and been in remission have, have gotten iller and iller. So, I don't routinely recommend the flu shots for our patients, but our patients are typically taking vitamin D, are typically taking an antioxidant of some kind and understand um, why we, we want to eat quality you know, uh, uh, food and so on. So they, they have that level of understanding that they don't typically get that ill. Thank you for your, all your time and, um, uh, and for the great questions. I hope I, I begin to answer some of them. Um, and uh, and happy belated New Year to all, all of you and blessings and uh, for a healthy and productive year and also 
Um, happy Chinese New Year for everyone who's listening uh, as well. So um, I'm going to sign off now and take care, everyone, uh, good friends and, and new friends out there. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>